We begin tonight at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and when we started the book last week, we noticed that Paul really wrote to the Thessalonians in this second letter, trying to help them understand and sort of process the persecution that they were going through, especially because it was difficult for them to uh, really understand it or, or sort of, as I said before, process it, because the persecution was coming from people who claimed that God was on their side and who had a religious motivation for their persecution. And we saw last week of how much Paul wanted to really assure the Thessalonians that God did care for them, that God was looking out for them, and that God would know how to deal with those who were persecuting them. Now, the reason why I bring that up is it's very important for us to understand that context of the Thessalonian Christians being in a season of persecution as we come into chapter 2. So let's start here, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But, but remember that these were uh, believers going through a season of persecution that Paul is writing to. Okay, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, we notice, first of all, in this first verse, Paul is dealing concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. In this section of the letter, he seems to be responding to some questions that were raised by what he wrote in the first letter. In the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, which we took a look at several weeks ago, Paul instructed the Thessalonians about this catching away of the church, which is commonly called today the rapture of the church. The word rapture doesn't appear in most English versions, but the idea is of this catching away of the church. Now, the challenge in understanding this chapter comes in the fact that what Paul teaches here is a supplement to what he has already taught them. Paul was present with the Thessalonians for several weeks, and in those few weeks that he was with them, founding the church, he taught them about uh, the end times events. He taught them about prophecy. He taught them about the coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't know exactly what Paul said to the Thessalonians. Yet, if we go carefully through this chapter, the ideas are clear enough if we carefully piece it together. So Paul writes, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and also our gathering together to him. I want you to notice here, right there in verse 1, there is the implication of a difference between the coming and the gathering. Do you notice that? The coming of our Lord Jesus and also our gathering together with him. This strongly suggests to us that there are essentially two comings of Jesus. One coming is for his church, as Paul earlier described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And the other is coming with his church to judge a rebellious world. One of my favorite commentators, a guy named D. Edmund Hebert, he shows how the grammar of the ancient Greek here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 shows that the government of the two nouns, as he puts it, I'm quoting here, I, I don't normally speak in such grammatically uh, you know, uh, constructed ways. He says, the government of the two nouns under one article makes it clear that one event viewed under two complementary aspects is thought of. And that's exactly what we need to consider. We talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that is a single event with two complementary aspects. The first aspect of the second coming of Jesus Christ is a coming that he has for his church. In other words, as he puts it here in verse 1, our gathering together with him. The second aspect of this is what Paul talked about, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of one event with two significant aspects is completely consistent with other passages of Scripture that indicate that there must be two aspects of Jesus' second coming, and I would say that these two different aspects must be separated by some appreciable period of time. I find it very interesting that if you go to Matthew chapter 24, 
uh, verses 37 through 42, uh, and then compare that with a passage like Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, or Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, you'll see that different world conditions for the return of Jesus Christ are described. In one passage, Jesus says, the Son of Man will come when men are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, that the Son of Man will come when life is business as usual. Things are just rolling along as they normally are. Say, okay, that's when Jesus is going to come back, when life is normal. And there's another passage of Scripture, other passages, uh, such as, as I quoted to you there, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, or Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, that tell us that the world will be an utter calamity when Jesus Christ returns. And so you have to ask yourself, well, which one is it? Je- Jesus, is the world just running along as normal when you return? Or is the world in the grips of a global calamity when you return? And Jesus says, well, there's two different aspects to my coming. The first aspect of my coming, which we commonly call the rapture of the church, that comes to a business-as-usual world. The second aspect of my coming, the coming of glory, the, the, the coming actual bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth, that happens in the midst of global calamity. We also see in the scriptures that different approaches of Jesus Christ to the earth are described. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read that Jesus would return in the clouds to meet his church in the air. Where in other passages, such as in Revelation chapter 19, we learn that Jesus Christ will return with the armies of heaven coming with him and that he will come to the earth. And you might ask the question, well, which is it? Does he come to the clouds and meet his church there? Or does he come with his church all the way to the earth? Well, the the answer is it's the same because there are two aspects of this single event, the return of Jesus Christ. By the way, you can also find in the scriptures that there are different scenarios regarding the predictability of the date of Jesus' return. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that no man knows the day or the hour of his return. Nobody. His return will be of a time and a day completely unknown by man. It'll come as a surprise. But then you can go to a passage like Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, where where, uh, Daniel speaks of a particular marking point that, by the way, Jesus and Paul later speak about, known as the abomination of desolation. And they say, Daniel says, three and a half years after the abomination of desolation comes the end. So which is it? By the way, I find that very fascinating, this idea that, that for anybody who is around to see it, when the abomination desolation happens, you can start marking your calendar for the day Jesus Christ will return. So which is it? Is it on a day and hour that nobody would know? Or is it on a day that you can mark on your calendar three and a half years from the abomination of desolation? Well, again, I think it's two different aspects of one single event that are being Considered here. So in verse 1, where we read concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we understand it to mean two aspects of a single event. And so in light of that, Paul says in verse 2, excuse me, verse 1, we ask you, going now into to verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. You see, apparently there was a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching. Or perhaps we might say an incorrect application of Paul's teaching. And that incorrect application or that misunderstanding had caused the Thessalonians to be shaken in mind and troubled. And so here Paul used very strong wording when he used those terms, shaken in mind and troubled. Shaken in mind has the idea of a sudden jolt. You know, if you were to grab somebody and just shake them. That's that's shaken in mind right there. But then he says, And troubled. Troubled has the idea of a continuing state of upset. And so think about the two of them together. Paul says you were shaken in mind. It just hit you. And then you stayed upset. And their fears centered on one kind of idea here, on the idea that the day of Christ had come. Did you see that there in verse 2? not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Somebody was saying, whether they said it by the spirit, whether they said it by word, whether they said it by letter, in any way they might have said it, they were trying to say, Paul wants you to believe that the day of Christ had already come. 
And I have to say here, and I don't often talk about textual criticism and different lines of manuscripts and such, uh, let me just sort of cut to the issue right here and say that I believed that a preferred manuscript rendering or reading of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 would, would actually say the day of the Lord instead of the day of Christ. I don't know exactly what it reads in your particular translation, but I think that the manuscript tradition that says the day of the Lord is more accurate than the one that says the day of Christ. And I simply say that also to connect it with the Old Testament idea of the day of the Lord. You know, this idea of the day of the Lord is a concept with a rich Old Testament background. And it was mentioned in Paul's previous letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 2. And we understand from that that the day of the Lord is not a single day. Instead, it's a period associated with God's outpouring of judgment and the deliverance of his people. A very significant aspect of the day of the Lord is the great tribulation that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31. And so we read here, as though the day of Christ, or you could say the day of the Lord had come. Now again, I need to get a little bit more into translations and the way this is rendered. I don't know what particular version you have here. I have the New King James in front of me, and the New King James puts that pretty well, where it says, as though the day of Christ, or you could say the day of the Lord, had come. Now, the old King James version says that the day of Christ is at hand. At hand means close, right? That is not what Paul is saying in the ancient Greek wording of this passage in the ancient New Testament. Not at all. The idea is not that the day of Christ is close. The idea is that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord was, was already present. In other words, the Thessalonians were not afraid that the day of Christ was coming. They were afraid that they were in it. This was their fear. This is what shook them up. This is what troubled them. Now, from this, it is obvious to Paul that the day of Christ had not completed. What would happen if the day of Christ had completed? Well, the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be set up in glory and power on this earth. That's what happens at the end of the day of the, of day, the day of Christ. Paul is going to go on to demonstrate that not only has the day of Christ not been completed, it is also not even yet dawned. Because the Thessalonians were afraid that they were in the great tribulation. And they feared that they had missed the rapture. So do you understand what Paul's getting at to them here? He's trying to explain to them that they are not in the day of Christ. You're not in the day of the Lord or the great tribulation because if you were, certain signs would be present. Now again, I want to take pains to notice this with you. The Thessalonians would only be shaken or troubled by the thought of being in the great tribulation. Again, only if they had been taught by Paul that they would escape that period through the rapture. Let me see if I can make this clear to you, because if you grab onto this, it's a very powerful idea. If Paul had taught the Thessalonians that the rapture of the church happens in the middle of the Great Tribulation, or at the end of the Great Tribulation, and if the Thessalonians believed that they were in the Great Tribulation, what would their reaction be? Their reaction would be, hallelujah, the day of Christ is coming. It's going to be all over. You know, hallelujah, it's all going to end. The rapture's coming soon. They would be excited by the thought because the rapture was coming. Jesus Christ was coming to take them soon. But if Paul had taught them that the rapture of the church happens before the day of the Lord, before the great tribulation, now, I want you to understand, if it's not clear to you already, I'm using those three phrases pretty much interchangeably. There can be subtle differences between the three, but for the most part, these phrases, day of the Lord, day of Christ, and great tribulation, for our purposes in this study, you can use them interchangeably. If the Thessalonians had been taught that the rapture of the church happened before the great tribulation, 
And if they believed that they were in the Great Tribulation, would that shake them up? You better believe it would. They would be in an absolute panic. Paul, what's going on? We're in the Great Tribulation, but you taught us that we would escape this. No wonder they were shaken. No wonder they were troubled. Now, Paul needs to explain to the Thessalonians now, no, you're not in the Great Tribulation, because if you were, you would see certain things, and because you don't see those things, you can know that you are not in the Great Tribulation. Now, let me add one more thing. What was it in the experience of the Thessalonians that might make them think that they were in the Great Tribulation? Well, how about this severe season of persecution that they're undergoing, right? I mean, listen, let's not escape the idea. It sure seemed like the Great Tribulation for many of the Thessalonian Christians, right? It was a time of affliction. It was a time of suffering. They saw some of their own suffering and perhaps even dying for the faith. And it made them wonder, oh my heavens, we must be in it right now. No wonder they had this sense of panic. So, Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken, verse 2 again, either by spirit or by word or by letter. Perhaps this, this misguided word came through a misguided prophecy, or perhaps some other leader wrote them a letter teaching that they were already in the day of Christ. Either way, they were upset at this idea that they had somehow missed the rapture. So Paul says, no, 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 let me show you why you're not. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, Thessalonians, you can know you're not in the great tribulation because you haven't seen this great falling away first. And number two, the man of sin has not yet been revealed. Now again, I want you to notice something. When Paul says, for that day will not come, Paul is not describing events that must come before the rapture. Instead, he's describing events that are concrete evidence of the great tribulation or the day of Christ. In this sense, one cannot be certain that the day of Christ has come or the great tribulation has come unless these signs are present. So he says, first, unless the falling away comes first. Now, this is sort of an interesting and, might I say, somewhat controversial phrase. Because the ancient Greek wording for falling away here usually indicates a rebellion or a departure. And Bible scholars like to debate if it refers to an apostasy among those who once followed God or a general worldwide rebellion. In fact, Paul may have both in mind. In other words, when he talks about this falling away, this rebellion, does he mean that believers will fall away? Or does he mean that that society in general will become more rebellious and more filled with contention and problems? You can go to different passages, and they'll back up really both ideas, and it may be that Paul had both of them in mind. Nevertheless, Paul's point is very clear. You are worried that we are in the Great Tribulation, and you're worried that you missed the rapture, but you can know that you're not in the Great Tribulation because we have not seen the falling away that comes first. By the way, the article here in the grammar makes it even more significant. This is not a falling away. This is the falling away, the great and significant final rebellion. Now, let me get into the part that some people consider controversial here. There are some people who think that the idea behind falling away is more emphasis, not so much on rebellion, but as I said before, you can also translate the idea as departure in the sense of the rapture of the church. Now, I don't think so. Honestly, as I, I wish it was teaching that. I wish I could stand before you tonight and say, well, Paul said you can know you're not in the Great Tribulation because the rapture hasn't happened. But, but I have to say, honestly, as I look at the text, I can say, mm, it's possible that that's what Paul meant, but honestly, I don't think so. You see, a departure implies that the person who leaves does so because they want to. They do it of their own accord and their own initiative. And this is not the case with the catching away of the church, Right? We're not going to depart in the sense of, well, I'd like to depart now in the rapture. You have nothing to do with that. You are caught away. You're sort of stolen away. 
By the way, there's one other aspect of this that makes me think that probably, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but probably Paul is not referring to the rapture here because in this ancient Greek word in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, that was the translation of the Old Testament into the ancient Greek language. The, the translation of this word into the New Testament, other places it's used, and in the Septuagint, always speaks of something negative and sinful. So I will admit that there is a slight possibility that Paul here refers to the rapture of the church, but I think that the weight of the evidence is against it. Now, what he's clearly telling us in my mind is that there will be a great end times apostasy. And Paul says, you can know that you are not in the great tribulation because you have not seen this great end times apostasy. And by the way, we we know that this will be true, right? We know from what the scriptures tell us about the rise of this man that we commonly call the Antichrist and his government that many, many people who at least take the name of Christian or the name of follower of God will follow this man and will follow his government and will follow the institutions of religion that he establishes. But I must say this that the idea of a great end times apostasy does not contradict the idea of a great end times revival. You see, some Christians doubt the idea of a great revival in the last days, or they even welcome signs of apostasy because they say, oh great, the more apostasy, the better. It shows that we're getting towards the end. But listen, just as the book of Revelation does describe great rejection of Jesus during the Great Tribulation, it also describes great acceptance of him. And the two really can stand side by side. I believe that the Great Tribulation will be great in the fact that it will see a tremendous apostasy, but it will also see a tremendous revival. The the two will be together. The lines will be drawn more boldly than ever before. You'll either be for him or you'll be against him. So that's the first aspect of verse 3, right? Let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Thessalonians, you can know you're not in the great tribulation because look around, you haven't seen this massive apostasy that is predicted for the great tribulation. But secondly, and this is probably more interesting to us, is it not? That the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. You see, before the great tribulation can be identified with certainty, a particular person, known here as the man of sin, must be revealed. And again, Paul's point is clear, right? We'll talk about the details of it, but don't miss the big picture here. You are worried that we're in the great tribulation and that you missed the rapture, but, but you can know that we're not in the great tribulation because we have not seen the man of sin revealed. Now, who is this man of sin? Well, let me call to your attention what the most traditional understanding of this man of sin has been throughout the history of the church. The the most traditional understanding of the man of sin is that he's not an individual, but that he's a system or an office. Historically, Protestant interpreters have seen the man of sin to be the succession of popes. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, he represents this way of thinking. This is what he says, quote, Paul, however, is not speaking of one individual, but of a kingdom that was to be seized by Satan for the purpose of setting up a seat of abomination in the midst of God's temple. This we see accomplished in popery. Now, he doesn't mean popery, the smelly stuff. He means popery as in, you know, the Pope. You know what I mean. Now, God forbid that I should look John Calvin in the eye when I get to heaven and say, John Calvin, you were wrong. But I can say nothing else. I think John Calvin is wrong on this point. And not him alone. I'll freely admit this is the majority of historical interpretation of this idea of the man of sin. They look at it and they say, well, it's not a man. It's a system. It's an office. And I say simply, if God wanted to say system or office 
Those words are readily available in the ancient Greek vocabulary, but he didn't say the system of sin. He didn't say the office of sin. He said the man of sin, and there is no good reason to see this man of sin to be anything other than what the plain meaning is here, that he is an individual who will come to great prominence in the very last days. And by the way, might I say that long before the time of John Calvin and others who interpret it this way, That's exactly how it was understood in the earliest days of Christianity. Adam Clark, a great commentator uh, of the late 1700s, he says that the church fathers understood the Antichrist to be intended here. But of this person, they seem to have um, formed no specific idea. In other words, they didn't know exactly who it was, but they they knew it referred to the Antichrist. And so we take pains to point out that when it says the man of sin, it's referring to a specific person. It's referring to the same individual person that Daniel referred to in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, and in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, and in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 35. In other words, the prince who is to come, the king of fierce countenance, and the willful king, those are individuals. We understand it to be the same person that Jesus described as an individual person when he said of this one who would later come in his own name in John chapter 5, verse 43. And so we're not surprised that Paul described this man of sin as an individual person, not as a system or an office. We're also reminded by the fact that this man of sin is a prominent figure in the Bible, and he's the ultimate personification of what the Apostle John called the spirit of the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He'll no doubt live many years before the Great Tribulation, but he'll only be revealed as the man of sin during that period. Now, by the way, he's not only the man of sin. Did you notice that in verse 3? What's the other phrase there? It says there that the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, again, I want you to notice, it's not that the man of sin is created at the Great Tribulation, right? He's not born at the Great Tribulation. He's what? He's revealed at the Great Tribulation. In other words, it's clear that he fits the description of this biblical person at the Great Tribulation. But he's not only the man of sin. As I said before, at the end of verse 3, it tells us that he's also the son of perdition. Do you know what perdition means? Perdition means destruction. It's the complete loss of well-being. It's really the opposite of salvation. When you call him the son of perdition, it means that his character is marked by his destruction. I like what uh, Moffat says about this phrase, son of perdition. He says that it essentially means the doomed one. It describes that not only has this destructive character, but that's his destiny as well. Okay, Thessalonians, breathe easy. You're not in the great tribulation. You didn't miss the rapture because the apostasy hasn't happened and the man of sin hasn't been revealed. But Paul is good enough to go on in verse 4 and tell us more about this man of sin and what he does. He tells us of this man of sin that he is the one, verse 4 now, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now, this man of sin demands worship for himself that belongs to God only. It says there very plainly in verse 4 that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. By the way, this demand for worship is also clearly described in Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 6 where it describes how all the earth will be commanded to worship this Antichrist and his image. You could say that he stands against and that he exalts himself above every divine authority. He demands to be the object of people's adoration and every institution must be serving him in this worshipful sense. Now, might I say that understanding the strength of this statement and the breadth of this statement shows us that saying that the Antichrist is the Pope is far too simplistic. The Antichrist will sponsor a religion that does not tolerate the worship of anyone 
or of anything except himself. The apostate Roman Catholic Church may be part of this end times religion, and I believe that it will be, but it will not encompass it. It'll be much bigger than that. And then it says there, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. The man of sin's demand where worship will be so extreme that he will set himself up at God's temple in Jerusalem, demanding this blasphemous worship from everyone. And by the way, this is a theme that is not unique to Paul. Revelation chapter 13 speaks about this theme. Matthew chapter 24 speaks about this theme with the abomination of desolation and the great destruction that will fall upon the world after the setting up of this idolatrous image of the Antichrist in the temple. So it says that he sits as God in the temple of God. Now, by the way, what does that tell us about the end times? That tells us that in this period of the great tribulation, which is yet to come, that there will be a temple of God. Might I say, some people think, well, this is a new interpretation. This is something that has just been around for a while. No, 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 that this is a literal temple. is clear from the text, and it's been understood so by, by even the earliest Christians. Uh, Irenaeus, who wrote in the late 2nd century, one of the earliest commentators on this passage of Scripture, says this. He says, But when the Antichrist shall have devastated all things in the world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. Oh, they understood in the early church that this meant a literal temple. And by the way, the literal understanding of Paul's words here is also supported by the fact that when he wrote this letter, something similar to this almost happened in the recent past. You may not know this. Even perhaps you've never heard this from history. But not long before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Emperor Caligula tried to erect a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Paul may have seen that this would be a possible fulfillment of this. But yet, yet, it's very clear that even though Caligula did this, he made an image of himself, he had it on a boat set for um, a Jerusalem, and he commanded that it would be set up in the temple in Jerusalem and that the Jews would be commanded to worship it. You know what happened? Before the boat ever made it to the Holy Land, uh, Caligula died. And the whole thing just, you know, nobody wanted to put up the image of a dead emperor there. And so that may have been very fresh in Paul's mind. Paul had in mind very much the idea of an idolatrous image being set up in the temple that people were commanded to worship. And so he says here that he sits as God in the temple. By the way, I need to say something else, that the specific ancient Greek word for temple here indicates the most holy place and not the temple as a whole. In other words, it's not just that, that the Antichrist enters the temple precincts. It tells us that he goes into the temple itself, into the most holy place. Now, when we think about this, it makes us think of something that is absolutely remarkable today, to think that there will be a rebuilt Jewish temple. Not long ago, I was in Israel and I had the opportunity to do something that I had not done for many, many years, and that was to take a tour of the Temple Mount. Although there was no tour guide, we just had the opportunity to go up there and walk around. And I have to say, that's one of the most wonderful places in my mind to go when you go to Jerusalem, is to go up on the Temple Mount, even though there is a very strong and, might I say, oppressive sense of Islam up on that Temple Mount. Nevertheless, to think that this is the real estate, where, first of all, the Temple of Solomon stood, and secondly, the Temple of Ezra, which later became Herod's Temple, and the Temple that Jesus and the Apostles themselves went and visited and were there at the Temple Courts. This was the Temple itself, where out of the outer courts, the Court of the Gentiles, where Jesus drove the money changers from the Temple. This was the temple itself where Paul was arrested and all these amazing historical things happened on that piece of real estate. It's very, very touching. But nevertheless, to think that it is on that same piece of real estate 
where another temple will be rebuilt. And you say, it is absolutely impossible. How could it happen that right there, next to one of the most holy shrines of Islam, this, uh, this Dome of the Rock shrine, and, and the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that sits there on the Temple Mount as well, and, and this area of real estate that is essentially governed by Islam, governed by the Muslims. How could it ever be that a Jewish temple would stand on there. You would say that, that, that is such an impossibility that it would take a virtual political superman to engineer such a peace treaty that would allow that to happen. And I say, exactly right. That is exactly what is going to arise. A, a political superman, and I believe that, that he will come to power on the currency of his ability to make peace. His ability to, to, to bring together warring factions and probably to clean up corruption and to make the world better and, and he will be regarded as a political and social and probably economic for that matter Superman. Look, I don't have to tell you, you just read the newspapers, look at the headlines, you know, punch up the website that gives you the news and you can see what a dangerous and perilous time the world is in. If there was a man who could come and fix it and make such a peace between Israel and its neighbors that there could be, wouldn't it be beautiful to think of that? Right next to one of the most holy shrines of Islam, the Dome of the Rock Shrine, next to it, a Jewish temple. What a powerful symbol of, of, uh, of world reconciliation. I believe something very, very much like that will happen. But then halfway through this seven-year period, that world leader is going to show his true colors. And even though he'll be regarded by the world as a political and economic and social superman, he's going to show himself for what he really is. And he's going to demand that the world worship him. And he's going to do it by setting up an image in this temple. Now, I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know how quickly that temple will be built. But I believe with all of my heart that it will be built. And when the Antichrist sets up this image of himself in this rebuilt Jewish temple, notice what it says there in verse 4, that he'll sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. By the way, you could say that this man of sin is truly an Antichrist. Satan has planned the career of the man of sin to mirror the ministry of Jesus. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a coming. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a revealing. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a gospel or a message. Both Jesus and the man of sin say that they alone should be worshipped. And both Jesus and the man of sin support their claims with miraculous works. But clearly, the man of sin is only Satan's parody of the true Messiah. You see, in the end, and Paul puts it so beautifully here, obviously by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you have to admit it, it's beautiful the way Paul puts it there in verse 4. Who does he show that he is God? Himself. In the end, the man of sin can only show himself that he is God. The coming of Jesus and the judgment of God will make it clear that the man of sin is not God at all. You say, wow, this is really impressive. Satan has a man of sin that he would like to you know, raise up in this world and, and use to show his heart and his power, so to speak, in this world. Why, why doesn't Satan reveal him right now? Well, Paul's going to answer that question. Start here at verses 5 through 8. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Again, we're very struck by this first phrase in verse 5 where Paul says, when I was still with you, I told these things. Paul was with the Thessalonians only a few weeks according to Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 10. Yet only in those few weeks he thought that one of the many important things that he would teach the Thessalonian believers was he would teach them about biblical prophecy and eschatology and things about the end times. And apparently he taught it to them in some detail because Paul could say, don't you remember I taught you these things? 
And then he goes on to explain apparently something that he had already taught them before. He says, and now you know what is restraining. That's in verse 6, that he may be revealed in his own time. You see, for now, the man of sin and Satan, you could say also, are being restrained. The principle of their working is now present. It says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The, the, The general principle of Satan and the man of sin, it's present in the world today. But at the right time, the Holy Spirit who restrains their full revelation will be taken out of the way. And we need to think about that phrase. It says right there that he will be taken out of the way. We should not think that the Holy Spirit will leave the earth during the Great Tribulation. That's what some people think, and it's a mistaken assumption. The Holy Spirit will be present on the earth during the Great Tribulation because many, many people will be saved, sealed, and will serve God during this period. And that can't happen without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not removed from the earth. He's taken out of the way. In other words, his hindering influence from preventing the Antichrist and the work of Satan that, he, that Satan wants to do through the Antichrist is right now being hindered, but at the moment of God's timing, it will be taken out of the way. And so uh, it's very important to see that this is uh, being ruled over by God, right? I mean, we have the feeling that if it were up to Satan, he would do it right now. It can't happen soon enough for Satan. But yet God is restraining according to his timing. Now, why is he restraining? Well, there's many reasons in the heart and in the counsel of God. But would we not say that one of the great reasons he is restraining is because he wants to see more come into his kingdom before he catches away his church and before the world is plunged into this period of great tribulation. But for now, as he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Verse 7, the great principle of evil is already present in the world. Now, it will be ultimately unveiled in the man of sin. But, but the man of sin, the Antichrist, isn't going to introduce a new wickedness into the world. No, he's only going to intensify the prior wickedness. Now, and then he says at the end of verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Paul states two certain facts about the man of sin here in verse 8, here called the lawless one. First, it's certain that the lawless one will be revealed when the Holy Spirit removes his restraint. In other words, whenever the Holy Spirit removes his restraint, Satan's not going to say, well, let me think about it. Maybe I want to wait a couple years. No way. When the Holy Spirit removes his restraint, bam, it's going to happen. But secondly, It is also certain that the lawless one will be destroyed by the mere brightness of Jesus at his coming. Whoever this man of sin is, he has not had his career yet. We know this because at the end of his career, who is the man of sin destroyed by? Paul tells you right there in verse 8, at the end of his career, the man of sin is destroyed by Jesus Christ himself. Now, Going on here, talking more about the man of sin, starting here at verse 9 about the character and the strategy of the man of sin. He says that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, these are very sobering words here. Paul tells us that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Again, that's sobering. The Antichrist will come with power and he will come with signs and lying wonders. But but all of those signs, all of that power, all of those lying wonders are according to the working of Satan. By the way, if you want a cross-reference for that, look in Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 through 17, where it describes the power of Satan being manifested in miraculous and amazing works through the Antichrist. And this sobers us up here. It shows us that if someone has spiritual power, if someone has miraculous signs, 
If someone has wonders from heaven, or apparently from heaven, those are not enough to prove that they're from God. Satan can perform his own powerful works either through deception or through his own resources of power. Now again, I say that with some hesitation. I'm not hesitating because I doubt what the Bible says here, or I doubt because it's important for us to, to hear this. It's very important for us to hear this. But I say it with just some measure of hesitation because sometimes this truth that, that Satan and deception can use signs and wonders and, and lying wonders and all the rest of it, that, that, that sometimes that truth is used to discourage people from believing in or desiring seeing the power of God in their midst. Well, it should never be used for such a justification as that. Listen, just because Satan has his own power, and Satan has his signs, and Satan has his lying wonders, it does not mean that we should not see power and godly signs and true wonders among us. Of course we should. But notice this. It says very plainly here in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish. This deception can only take root in those who do not receive the love of the truth. These people are ready for the deception of the Antichrist because they want a lie. And what's the response of that? It says that God will, verse 11, God will send them strong delusion. Think about that. Verse 11 tells us, God will send them. You know, in the end, the Antichrist is only God's messenger. God has judgment to bring, and he will send a strong delusion through the Antichrist. Now, God will not force this delusion upon anyone, but those who do not receive the love of the truth, they will receive this strong delusion. You see, they were at first deluded, and that was their sin, and then God sent them a strong delusion, and that was their punishment. And what was the punishment? Look at it there in verse 11, that they should believe the lie. By the way, you could say specifically that God sends them the lie. That's not just any lie, but it's the lie, the lie that has enthralled the human race since the time of Adam. I would say it's the lie that God is not God, and that we can be gods. The end of it all, verse 12, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As God gives rebellious man the lie that he desires, it isn't out of his generosity. God doesn't look at rebellious man who loves lies, who loves delusions, and says, well, I want to bless them, so I'll give them all the lies and delusions they want. No, no, no. When God sends the delusion, when God gives them over to the lie, it is actually judgment upon those who reject the truth. You see, as Romans chapter 1 points out, this is God giving man up to the depravity of his heart to, as he says here in verse 12, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so when God gives those who take pleasure in unrighteousness even more unrighteousness and more deception, it becomes a greater and a greater judgment to them. But, we must say, that this happily was not the case among the Thessalonian believers. I mean, despite all this, this, this fear that they had had, they were shaken, they were soon troubled. But Paul has cleared it up for them, right? You didn't miss the rapture. You're not in the great tribulation. Oh, okay, we understand that now. And, and so what do you do with somebody after they've been shaken and troubled and you've cleared up sort of the, the, the air and thinking that has damaged them? Well, what do you do next? You encourage them, right? So now verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he picks up the thought that he started back in chapter 1, verse 3, that he was obligated to thank God for his work in the Thessalonians. I mean, look at there. Chapter 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. He's back to the same theme. 
I'm thankful, Paul says, I'm thankful because you are, look at verse 13, because you are brethren beloved by the Lord. Isn't that a great reason to be thankful? First of all, that you're brethren, that we're all part of one family. And secondly, God loves you so much. But, but that's not the only reason why he was thankful. He was also thankful because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Paul also praised the sovereign choice of God in bringing them to salvation. God's choice was from the beginning. But before they chose God, God chose them. And he chose them for salvation through sanctification. Isn't that beautiful? You see, the two go together. Some people think that they're chosen for salvation, but not sanctification. Isn't that true? So, well, yes, I'm chosen to be saved. Hallelujah, I'm saved. But to walk a life that's right with God? No, 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 that's, that's not what God is chosen. No, no, Paul says they go together there. Salvation through sanctification. And, and those who claim to be chosen, but lack evidence of sanctification, which we could define as a separation from the world, and a separation unto God, those are on shaky ground. You know, I can't see whether or not you're chosen, right? God doesn't put a big blinking light on the forehead of all of his chosen. But what he does do is he gives them a life that is sanctified and growing in sanctification, right? We understand that sanctification is, is all at once a gift from God, but it is also a process in the Christian life. And so we don't look at a per, certain person and say, well, um, a little bad temper today, I guess you're not really saved. But, but what we do is we just expect that the sanctification will continue to grow in their life, and as the months and the years go on, that they will grow more and more like Jesus Christ. Going on now, not the only thing he was thankful for, he goes on to say, by the Spirit and belief in truth. In other words, God's work of sanctification uses two great forces. It uses the force of the Spirit, and it uses the force of belief in the truth. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are essential to our sanctification. And then he talks about this, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 15, an exhortation for them to stand fast. He says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. You see, therefore, in that passage, means that Paul wants us to consider what he's written up to this point. He's given us compelling reasons why Christians must stand fast and not be moved. Stand fast because you're in a lot of persecution right now, right? That's in chapter 1. Stand fast because of the coming judgment of this world. He described that at the end of chapter 1. Stand fast because of the strength of the coming deception, right? There's a lot of power and signs and lying wonders out there. And stand fast because of your glorious destiny. He ended verse 14 talking about the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So stand fast and hold the traditions. By the way, that command to stand fast, doesn't it imply a location? A place you should be, right? Stand fast. And what's the location? The location is upon the traditions. Now, when he says traditions... I don't think anybody should think for a moment that he's speaking about, you know, their, their dining traditions or their, uh, their you know, um, birthday traditions or their holiday traditions. No, he's not talking about that kind of thing. When he says traditions, he means the, the received word of God. They must keep standing on God's word delivered by both the authoritative word of the apostles and by the letters of the apostles and by the uh, letters of the apostles. Look at it there. Again, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. When he's talking about traditions, he's not talking about the traditions of men. You know, the Bible recognizes that traditions can be a dangerous feature of religious systems. And it also talks about the traditions of man in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. But Paul has in mind what we might call apostolic traditions those apostolic traditions that are preserved for us in the record of the New Testament. And it's with that anchor of, of that apostolic tradition that we can truly stand fast. So finally, let's end the chapter here, verses 16 and 17. We just see the progression of Paul's thought all the way through this chapter. He says, Now may the Lord, excuse me, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father 
who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You know, those are two pretty rich verses right there. If you went through and examined every word and every phrase, you know, uh, one of my favorite preachers, as you know, it's no mystery to you, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England, he preached five different sermons over his ministry career on these two verses. And it's a great idea here. First of all, verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us. You see, before Paul asked God to do something specific for the Thessalonians, he's praying for them, right? Before he says, oh God, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. Before he does any of that, Paul remembered all that God had done for them. God had loved them, and he gave them everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. You know, whenever we intercede, whenever we petition before God, we do very well to remember God's past faithfulness and his present blessings. His faithfulness in the past is always a promise of his faithfulness for the future. God has given us very much, whenever we come before him, we just say, oh Lord, you loved us. You have loved us. Your love for us is established. And now he's going to come and ask God to do something here. What does he ask? Who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Now, may that God, verse 17, Comfort your hearts and establish you. Paul asked God to do two things in the Thessalonian Christians. First, he wanted God to comfort their hearts. Secondly, he asked God to establish them in every good word and work. You know, this is a prayer for comfort and a prayer for continued testimony and work for Jesus Christ. It's very fitting in light of the, the special needs of these believers living under pressure. So, and to establish them. Finally, in every good word and work. Uh, there, there's some textual evidence that Paul originally put the order as this. Every good work and word. We find that in some ancient manuscripts. Again, in, in my Bible, I have it every good word and work. But there's some evidence that Paul actually wrote every good work and and word. Though this is a small difference, Charles Spurgeon saw an important distinction in the order. He says this, Some Christian people think that the word should be everything and work nothing. But the scriptures are not of their mind. These professors speak a great deal about what they will do, talk a great deal about what other people ought to do, and a great deal more about what others fail to do. And so they go on with word, 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 and nothing else but word. They do not get as far as work, but the apostle put work first in this case. Well, I think what it tells us is that in our Christian life, sometimes there needs to be less talking and more doing, right? Do, do, do you talk a good Christian life? I hope so. I hope that your speech honors Jesus Christ. I hope that you speak about the things of God, and that's all glorious that you do. But you shouldn't just be able to talk a good Christian life. You should be able to do it, too. You know, I think of my own self and uh, say something as simple as, uh, as playing golf. You know, I golf a little bit. Not that much. I'm certainly not that good. My father, he's a very devoted golfer, and he's pretty good. And it's a lot of fun for me, especially to go golfing with my father, and even better if I can go golfing with my brother as well. And even though I'm not a very good golfer, I know something about golf. Maybe it's all those years growing up in my father's home where he was such a devoted golfer. Let me put it to you this way. I can talk a much better game of golf than I can actually perform. That may be true with a lot of people, but it's certainly true with me. It may be that true of me as well, and perhaps you too, when it comes to the Christian life. Word is important. But let's remember work, too. At the end of the verse, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. All the more fitting as we see the end approaching and as we believe we do live in these end times. It's very exciting to think that um, 
The end is close. That we have great encouragement and reason to believe that this glorious coming of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul mentioned at the very beginning of our chapter is not far off. And that this man of sin may be present. He, he may even be prominent in the world today. Although certainly he has not yet been revealed as the man of sin. And who knows how God may unveil these things in the coming months, in the coming years. May we be ready to do that. And here's the great way to be ready, to be established in every good word and work. Father, that is our prayer. As we see the end approaching, Lord. We can't say with certainty, Lord. We're not here as prophets to predict a day or an hour. But Lord, we can do what you told us to do in seeing the signs of the times And Father, as we do that, it makes us say, Oh, Jesus, your coming is close. It's even at the door. Therefore, Lord, we feel an even greater urgency to be comforted and to be established in every good word and work. Help us to do that, Lord, to bring you great glory by our godly lives. Help us to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.